Thank you, Father, for the revelation of Yourself in Your Word. For we would know of Your existence if all we had was creation. We would be left without excuse if we only had the demonstration of Your attributes in this world through creation. But, in your infinite grace, you have not only revealed yourself in creation, but you have revealed yourself in your word and in the person of Jesus Christ. And we not only are held accountable for our sin before you, but we are given a means out of our sin by this revelation in your word. And we have been given salvation even as we've heard testimony of this morning. And we have been given instruction for how to live and power to live that way, even as we will see in this passage. And so, Father, would you awaken us, open our minds and hearts, captivate us by the revelation of yourself this morning, and transform us even as we worship you through this word. We worship you. We ascribe to you what you are worthy of hearing about yourself. And we ask that we would be transformed in the process. We pray these things for your glory and in the name of Christ. Amen. In the early 1980s, I moved with my parents and brother to a new city, and we did what we always did whenever we moved, and that was we started to look for a new church. And so one Sunday morning, we picked out a church that sounded like it was a good church. That was pre-internet days, so you just kind of had to go through the phone book and look for church names, and we found a, a church that was associated with a healthy denomination, and we thought, well, this this ought to be a good place to start. Let's go here. And everything that morning seemed to be pretty typical, pretty, pretty good. I don't remember much about the sermon. Don't remember the passage that the pastor was preaching from. Don't remember the topic of the passage, but I will never forget one application that he was making about the passage that he was preaching. Midway through the sermon, he stopped and he said something like this. It's an almost 40-year-old memory, so it's not exact. He said, some of you have not spoken to others of you in decades. You sit on opposite sides of the sanctuary so that you don't have to see each other. Or interact with each other. When one of you walks into a room, the other walks out. None of you or some of you will refuse to sit at the same table to eat a meal together. You've treated each other harshly for decades. And it ought not to be that way. I have no idea about the backstory, and I don't know how it played out because 
that illustration really wasn't a helpful, hey, come be part of our church, you'll love it here, (laughs) invitation. But I've thought about that church many times. Because that story could be told over and over and over in the history of Christ's church. Christ has called us to be one. He, in fact, has made us one as His body. And He has called us to enjoy that oneness that we have. And too often churches ended up, end up fractured and split. A lot of things cause those fractures. Theology and the departure from sound theology causes fractures. Sin and not dealing with sin causes fractures. Lack of care of individuals in the church causes breakups. Favoritism, as it was in Corinth, causes breakups. Politics breaks up churches. Not that anybody's seen anything about that in the last 18 months. Personal preferences. What color is the carpet going to be? How big is the kitchen? How much should we spend on appliances? Causes the breakups of churches. Lots of reasons. The tragedy is so many churches end up split. The question is, are there reasons for staying together? Are there reasons for unity? What, if anything, will compel us to stay together and work together in harmony with one another? Or can we stay harmonious and how will we stay harmonious with one another? From the beginning of Romans chapter 14, we've been talking about liberty and the use of liberties. Those things that were excluded in the Old Testament, now in the New Testament because of Christ and His fulfillment of the law. There are things that we can do that were previously prohibited. And how shall we exercise those things? How should we relate to people who exercise those privileges in other ways than we do? And we've been saying for several weeks that we are to use our individual freedoms as a means of preserving corporate unity in the body. Now, as Paul comes to summarize this section in chapter 15, verses 7 to 13, he's going to say this. Because Christ has accepted us, we accept one another. It is on the basis of the fact that Christ has accepted us that we are to accept one another and maintain harmony with one another. And Paul seems to be acknowledging in these verses again the difficulty of maintaining unity and maintaining harmony when when we have diverse opinions. And so he exhorts us in these final verses to accept one another, giving us three considerations about the importance of accepting one another. Three considerations for how we can accept one another. The first of them is given to us in verse 7. It's a very simple statement. It's a command, really. Accept one another. Accept one another. In 15.1, we saw that Paul was beginning to transition into something of a conclusion. So he says in 15.1, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. So he's With that word now, he's starting to transition and summarize the things that he's saying. But in verse 7, he's even stronger. 
therefore, now he's really wrapping it up. Now he's coming to a conclusion. What should things look like? And he's going back to 14.1, the very first thing he said about liberty issues, and he's repeating it. 14.1, now, accept the one who is weak in faith. So some are weak. Their consciences won't allow them to do particular things. And he says, accept that one. And now in 15.7, kind of putting a bracket around this entire discussion, he says the same thing, accept that one. The word accept, as we've talked about, means much more than just tolerate. It's not something that is begrudging. It is to welcome, to embrace. It is a wholehearted acceptance. It is to provide hospitality. It it is when you see a person and your arms open wide and your eyes light up and you hug them. Remember, about 15 months ago, we were in COVID and things had been locked down since March and things were starting to open back up. And the governor said, okay, we can, we can start doing a few other things and we can open some things up. And Regine and I had tried to be circumspect and handle our thing, handle things appropriately. And even though our daughter and son-in-law lived in Crowley at the time or Burleson at the time and, and were close by, we, we maintained distance from them. That was hard. But about mid, late May, we said, hey, let's get together. And so Regine and I got in the car and we're driving to Daniel and Elizabeth's house. And, and I looked at Regine and I said, I forgot to talk to them about what to do. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Are they going to want to wear masks? Are they going to want to keep distance? Or, you know, what, what should we do? Well, let's just wait and see what happens when we get there. So we get to the house. We pull into the driveway. I get out of the car. I'm going to go to the back seat and get some things out of the back seat that we brought for them. And I heard the door open and I turned around and I saw my my daughter virtually flying at me. And I had just enough time to kind of put my foot behind me and brace myself as she launched from about six feet and jumped into my arms. And I said, well, I guess that answers that question. (laughs) That's literally what I said. Brothers, that's acceptance. That's what it means to welcome. It is all in. No holding back. That's what we're to do. To accept someone is not to say... I love your brother, but I just don't like you very much. It's not all in. To accept a brother is to embrace him. It's familial in its welcome. Notice also when he says accept one another, that's an imperative. It's a command. It's a required duty. Accepting one another is not optional. And it's not only not optional, it's a present tense, which means that it's something that we do habitually, regularly. Whenever we have an opportunity to accept another person, we do it. It's always, it's always on. Never takes a break. It's hard to see it here, but it's also reflexive, which means something like, you yourselves accept one another. In other words, it's, it's your responsibility, Terry, to accept. You do it. 
You do it, not don't wait for somebody else to do it for you. It's my task. It's my job. It's my duty. And notice as well that it's mutual. Therefore, accept one another. I accept you and you accept me. And I get the better end of that deal because I know who's harder to accept. And that's me. We're both responsible to cultivate a welcoming atmosphere in the church body. And again, this means no limitations. None. Always accepting. I was thinking about that this week, thinking about this bracket idea. You know, so he starts it in 14.1, accept one another. Says the same thing in 15.7. And I was thinking about how the readers might have responded to that. And I think when he first said it in 14.1, you know, he's just talked about relationships in the body in chapter 12. He's talked in chapter 13 about loving one another. And I can see the readers kind of nodding their heads and going, yeah, Paul, you bet. Accept one another, you bet. We're in. Okay, keep going. And then for a chapter and a half, he said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You don't understand. You're not thinking about all the differences that you guys have. And all the different habits you have. And all the different preferences you have. And all the different ways that you exercise liberty. And in that context, he says, accept one another. In light of the differences, I think in 15.7, what he wants us to hear is, in the light of all the differences that you have, accept one another. The strong are going to be tempted to be condescending and overbearing and uncaring. And the weak are going to be tempted to be manipulative and judgmental and legalistic. And Paul says, y'all accept each other. You know, it's easy to accept each other when we are the same. Or at least when we're similar. When we have things of common interest, similar experience, Similar identity. If you get all the cowboys together and put them in a church, it's easy. Because y'all show up with cowboy boots and jeans and ropes and horses. And you call yourself a church. Or you can do the same thing for motorcycles and arts. If you identify a church around similar causes and similar needs and similar political positions, similar affiliations, it's easy because we all like the same stuff. But Paul says we should accept one another when we are in Christ and have differences. The fact that we don't like the same music And the fact that we have different opinions about worship styles. We have different opinions about what we might do on a Saturday night in preparation for worship. We have different ideas about how to worship and when to worship. We have different ideas about 
foods and the exercise of liberties around food and drink. And Paul says in the middle of that. Now don't just tolerate. Embrace. Think six foot running jump. Embrace. I love what Deborah and Dunlop say in their book, Compelling Community. Many relationships that naturally form in our churches would exist even if the gospel weren't true. That's good, right? Helpful. But in addition, we should aspire for many relationships that exist only because of the gospel. So often we aim at nothing more than community based on similarity. I want us to aim at community characterized by relationships that are obviously supernatural. The only reason we're together is because we have a common head named Jesus Christ. Not because we all happen to like motorcycles or cowboying or the Dallas Cowboys. We don't care about those things. We care about Christ. That's what ties us together. Remember um, remember Sesame Street? Or watching Sesame Street with your kids? They used to have a segment. I don't know if they still do. They used to have a segment called One of These Things is Not Like the Other. And they'd show like four things. And three of them would be similar and one was different. And they're just trying to teach similarity and difference, right? In the church, we gravitate to one of these things is not like the other. Let's get rid of the other. And Paul says, one of these things is not like the other. Let's embrace in acceptance. Accept one another. Another consideration Paul gives us verses 7 to 13, middle of 7 to 13. Excuse me, that should be 12. God is, um, we are to accept one another because Christ has accepted us all. We accept one another because Christ has accepted us. What Christ has done is he, he has accepted us all for God's glory. Notice verse 7. Middle, just as Christ also accepted us. Just as. That word just as usually, almost always, is translated to give the sense of this is the way you do it. It's the manner or the way that we do something. And, and it certainly could do that, be that here. And, and, and you would not um, end up in any kind of heresy And so you could say, follow the model of Christ. Do what he did. Occasionally, that word just as has a causative sense. It means something like because. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. Therefore, accept one another because Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. We accept one another the way Christ does, but far more than that. We accept one another because we've been accepted by Him. We accept all of each other 
that are in the body of Christ because Christ has brought all of us into that body. Since Christ has rejected all, or excuse me, since Christ has accepted all, will we, will we reject some? Won't we instead treat them as brotherly? I like what one commentator said. Not to accept one another when Christ has accepted them is unthinkable. Christ has done this. In fact, I think Paul might be alluding back to what he said in 1415. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Christ died for this brother. He's your brother. And because of that, because of what Christ did, you accept him. And just think for a minute about what Christ did in accepting us. Notice he says us, us. All of us. So he's going to break it out in just a moment. But already he's giving in to Jew and Gentile. Weak and strong. But he's accepted us and welcomed us. Even when we don't seem to fit in. Think, think, about, think about Christ on the cross. Think about Christ before the cross. Mark chapter 10. They were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, to the disciples, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What's going on? The disciples said, Jesus, it's kids. Get them out of your way. We're trying to help you so that you can deal with the important people. Jesus says, no, I want the weak. Bring me the weak. The church is built up of people like these. If you're going to come to me, you need to come like these who appear to be weak and insignificant and unimportant and impotent. You bring them to me. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms. Remind you of something? And he began blessing them. Laying his hands on them. He's brought them in. And because he's brought them in. You embrace them. Will we reject. Those. Whom Christ has welcomed. Will we reject those for whom Christ died? I'm not minimizing the difficulty of relationships. Relationships are hard. I think I've alluded to it previously. I love the book title by Paul Tripp, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. It's tough, isn't it? And I get it. For some of you, I'm the tough one. And I, I don't mean that jokingly. I know that's true. Relationships are hard. Paul's not minimizing that, but he's saying, in spite of the hardness, you embrace. You welcome. You draw in. 
because Christ has done that. And there have been times when I've been thinking about a relationship and when, when honestly it'd be easier just to throw up your hands and say, I quit, I give up. When I've thought of this, and I said, Christ died. I've, I've asked myself this, the literal question, Christ died for this person. Christ died to make them his, to make them his child. Will I reject them? Well, it's a really clarifying question to ask. Christ did that. He accepted us. And he did it for the glory of God. What does it mean to do something for the glory of God? It means that it reveals the nature of God and makes us to delight in that nature. And I think what Paul is particularly pointing to here is not so much the delight, but the revelation. Christ accepted us to reveal the kind of God that God is. God is the kind of God who loves to embrace sinners. God is the kind of God who loves to take the weak and make them strong, to take the broken and heal them. God is a God who saves sinners. When we accept one another because Christ accepts us, we recognize that there is something more important than me in the process. That like Christ, and because of what Christ did for God's glory, I need to treat others in the body in the same way for God's glory. So relationships in the body aren't about making things easy. It's about making God revealed to show others what God is like. And when I don't accept others, like the church I told you about a few minutes ago, it means that I am most important and God is not important. And His glory is not important. It means that I want to be worshipped. And I don't care about others becoming worshippers of God. Acceptance is massive in the church. We accept one another. Because Christ has accepted us all. And He's done it for God's glory. Christ has accepted Jews for God's glory. Starting in verse 8 through verse 12, Paul identifies two particular groups that actually encompass all of mankind into the kinds of people that God, through Christ, has accepted. And first he identifies in verse 8 the Jews. How did Christ accept the Jews? Notice verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. The circumcision, that is, those who identify themselves with the law through circumcision, that is, the Jews. Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. This demonstrates just how far Christ will go in accepting others. He will go to the point of service. He will go to the point of saying, others are more important than me. It is more important for me to serve than I am served. Sounds like Mark 10.45, doesn't it? The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give His life a ransom for many. And notice also that Paul says He has become. That means He became and He continues to be a servant. 
So it's not like Christ came to earth and said, well, I'm going to serve while I'm on earth or I'm going to serve when I'm at the cross and then and then I'm done. No, Christ came to earth as an act of service and everything from that point forward. He is the servant of the circumcision of the Jew. He is always a servant, never ceases to be a servant. He will never relinquish his servanthood. And why does he do that? On behalf of. Of the truth of God. So that the truth of God would be revealed and advanced. The sense of that clause is something like. So that the faithfulness of God will be made known. Which is simply another way of saying. So that God's glory will be revealed. Jesus does what he does to show that God is true to his word. And that reveals his nature. And that's what we do for one another. We come to serve each other, to show each other in our service. This is, this is what God is like. And notice also, he did this not only for the truth of God, but on behalf of the truth of God for the purpose that, they, that the promises that were get made to the fathers would be confirmed, to confirm to validate the promises to the fathers. This has been a consistent message of the apostle virtually from the first verse forward that God is going to keep his promise. Romans 1, 2, he talks about himself as an apostle set apart for the gospel, set apart for the gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He made a promise to Israel through the prophets, and he will yet fulfill that. One sixteen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Chapter 4, verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And all of chapter 4 is the fulfillment of that promise that was made to Abraham. God's made a promise, God's made a promise, God's made a promise all through this book. Christ reveals that God is accepting Israel, not on the basis of Israel, but on the basis of the promise that he made to them. There are diverse people, but he has accepted them. He's not only accepted Jews, he's also accepted another people group, the Gentiles. Christ has accepted the Gentiles for God's glory. That's verses 9 to 12. At this point, if a Jew was reading this, they might say, well, yeah, of course. The promises were made to us. Of, of course, God accepts us. And then Paul throws this in. And what's the and connected to? It's connected to the verb in verse 8. Christ has become a servant to the Jews and to the Gentiles. So he is a servant to the Gentiles in the same way that he is a servant to the Jews. He has accepted the Gentiles who believe in him in the same way that he has accepted the Jews. Now, all through chapter 14 and into the first part of chapter 15, Paul's been talking strong and weak, strong and weak, strong and weak. And now he interjects Jew and Gentile. And I think what Paul is 
implying here is that some of the strong and weak issues are probably going to be divided along ethnic lines. Jew and Gentile. And you need to accept one another in the body, not just around preference on liberty, but you accept one another ethnically because of what God has done to tie Jew and Gentile together. And so he does that in four ways. In verse 9, he quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 22. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Now he quotes 2 Samuel 22. Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. 2 Samuel 22, that's the same passage that we read earlier this morning, Psalm 18. It's, it's, it's virtually identical in structure and, and verses. This is David's song after he is freed from, freed from Saul and liberated from, from Saul. We get that in 22.1. David spoke these words of his song to the Lord in the day that the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so Paul, excuse me, David sees his kingship restored to him by God's deliverance. But he sees a kingship not just over Israel. He sees a kingship also over the nations. You have kept me as head of, and you would expect Israel, but that's not what he says. Head of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me, foreigners Pretend obedience to me as soon as they hear, they obey me. That the foreigners come trembling out of their fortresses, verse 46. It leads them all, these foreigners, to give praise to God. Paul, Paul is saying, remember back, even in the ministry of David, that God had in mind that he was going to save the Gentiles and bring them into the promises. But it's not just David. Verse 10. And again he says. And this time he quotes not from David. In Samuel and Psalms. But he quotes from Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And if you remember Deuteronomy 32. That's that's uh, Moses' song shortly before he dies. And it's this song of victory, praise, delight. As the nation is about to go into the land. And in the verses immediately preceding what Paul quotes, there are warnings from God about his coming judgments of the, of the, of the rebellious nations. So um, verse 39 of Deuteronomy 32, See now that I, I am he, there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and it is I who give life. I have wounded, it is I who heal. There is none who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and I say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing, flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh 
with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Then verse 43, Rejoice, O nations, with his peoples. And when, when Moses sings, Rejoice, nations, that's a way of saying, Repent, nations, so that you can escape the coming wrath that God has just talked about and come and worship him. God is thinking about Jew and Gentile worshiping together as far back as Deuteronomy. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. There he's quoting Psalm 117. It's the shortest psalm in the entire Psalter. It's two verses and he quotes one of them. And in that verse that he quotes, what is significant, notice it, you can see it. Praise the Lord. Now, in my Bible, that's in small caps. That indicates that it's the name Yahweh. And the name Yahweh is God's covenant name with Israel. It's the name by which he made the promises to the nation of Israel. And he says, praise the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God all you Gentiles. And in fact, twice he says, all, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples praise him. All the people of the earth have access to God. And he welcomes them all to come to him for salvation. And they can rejoice with God. Verse 12. Again. Another instance. Isaiah says. Interestingly. Verse 9. He doesn't say David. And verse 10. He doesn't say Moses. Verse 11. He doesn't say David or the psalmist. But verse 12. He says Isaiah. I can't tell you for sure why, but I can tell you this. The Hebrew Bible is divided into three major sections. The law, that's the writings of Moses. The writings, that's the narrative and the poetic sections. So Joshua through um, Song of Solomon and then the prophets. Now notice what, date, what, what Paul has done. In verse 9, he quotes from the writings. In verse 10, he quotes from the law. In verse 11, he quotes again from the writings. And in verse 12, he quotes from the prophets. And I think Paul is drawing attention to Isaiah to say, Hey, this is all through the Old Testament scriptures. The entire Old Testament the law, the writings, the prophets all speak to the same reality that God has accepted the Gentiles into the promises of salvation. And now he comes to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11. It's the passage we read earlier. There shall come the root of Jesse, that is the Messiah that comes from Jesse, 
and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. And in him shall the Gentiles hope. The Gentiles and the Jews together with one Messiah and one Savior. And that is where he says, verse 12, they will have hope. He comes as a Savior of hope. As we think about verses 9 to 12, it is appropriate to remember the animosity between Jew and Gentile. We have a history of ethnic hatred in this country. Brothers, it pales in comparison to the hatred between Jew and Gentile. I was trying to think of a word this week that might speak to the animosity between the two. Couldn't think of one. It surpasses anything we know. And in the context of that animosity, which was still existent when Paul wrote this, he says, accept, embrace, welcome, be hospitable. And when we say that, just for clarity's sake, we're not talking about overlooking doctrinal differences and heresy. We're talking about embracing brothers who just happen to be different, who happen to be making different choices than we do, but they're brothers. They're in Christ. And we accept them, welcome them, and are hospitable to them as being in Christ. When we don't live in unity, and when we don't accept, one of the things we're doing is we're saying, God's partial. God, God prefers some over others. God cares about the Jews and he doesn't care about the Gentiles. Or he cares about the Gentiles and he's given up on the Jews. Or he cares about me and he doesn't care about you. And we make the gospel to be something that is meritorious. I get in and I get accepted because of something I am instead of because of who Christ is. And when we play favorites, it's not something that is secondary to the gospel. It is woven into the gospel. And when we are disunified and disharmonious, we upend the gospel and say that it is something that it is not. Unity and acceptance is not secondary. It's primary. It's a gospel issue. There's one other consideration that Paul gives us. That's in verse 13. Accept one another by the Spirit's power. By the Spirit's power. How are, you, how are we going to do this, Paul? Verse 13. He provides kind of a benedictory prayer like he did in verses 5 and 6. It's a desire and a blessing at the same time. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. 
When he says, may the God of hope fill you, he is understanding that if this is going to happen, it's only going to happen because God has done it. In fact, he's going to say the same thing at the end of the verse. Will he do this by the power of the Holy Spirit? You can't. He can. He will transform your heart. He will take you from one who hates to one who loves, from one who holds back to one who embraces, from one who is not welcoming to one who is welcoming. That's the heart of the gospel. The God of hope fills you with all joy and peace in believing. When you believe, he gives you joy and peace. I I think those words, joy and peace, probably need to be taken together. He's really talking about the same kind of thing. There's joy with one another. There's peace. There's harmony. There's unity with one another when we believe. This, This is what God does. He weaves us together in one body and ties us together. And he not only ties us together in joy and peace and harmony with one another. That peace might be a peace with him. But I think he's really talking about a peace in the body. May God fill you with all joy and peace in your body, in believing, so that you will abound in hope. That's the other blessing that comes from believing. When you believe, he'll give you joy and peace. And when you believe, you will abound in hope. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 12, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you so that you will abound in hope. Three times in two verses, Paul draws attention to our hope, our confidence in Christ. That he's going to bring about the completion of his salvation. He'll accomplish what he has designed to do. And he will do that by the Spirit's power. And what does the Spirit use to equip us? This book. And how does this book help us? It changes the way we think. And when we change the way we think, we will change what we do. It's really a simple process. But it's essential. Unity is essential. Let's summarize. Just a few questions based on this text and where we've been over the last six or eight weeks. Is my life characterized by gracious and hospitable acceptance of my brothers or harsh judgmentalism? Do I embrace, welcome? Do your eyes light up when you see each other? When I practice liberties, am I actually sinning against my own conscience? Is my own conscience, when I practice liberties, really telling me, Terry, don't do that. But I do it anyway because I want the liberty more than I want conformity to Christ. Do my practices of liberties and preferences reveal that I am living for Christ or myself? Remember 14.8? If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. It's always for the Lord. It's always for His glory. It's always about Him and never about us. Why do I want my liberties? Do I want my liberties for me or do I want my liberties so God is revealed? Four, 
Do my practices of liberties cause others to be trapped by sin? And if so, am I quick to give up my liberties? Am I willing to say, I know it's my right, but I'm going to give it up so that I don't cause someone else to stumble? Am I willing to give up liberties because Christ gave up liberties so that God would be glorified? Christ gave up way more liberties than we'll ever think about giving up. He laid aside the glory of heaven and took on the mantle of manhood permanently to serve us. Can I do that? Giving up liberties because Christ gave up liberties for me. Am I quick to embrace brothers as genuine brothers, even if they used to be enemies? That's Jew and Gentile, right? Can I do similarly? And am I purposefully looking for opportunities to accept others and unify the body of Christ? I mentioned this last week. It, 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 it hit me about three or four sermons in to this section. What Paul has done here. In chapter 12, it's just kind of a litany. It's almost, it's almost like this bombardment, one thing after another, just quick, quick takes on ways to operate in the body, one thing after another. And he's just moving on from one topic to another very rapidly. Chapter 13, he talks about government and he talks about love. And then chapter 14 through half of chapter 15, he talks about one topic, liberty. And about preserving the body within the exercise of those liberties. It's, it's as if Paul is saying, tap the brakes, hold on, this is critical. And honestly, I don't know that I've ever heard any other sermons on liberty. It's just not something we talk about. And Paul says this is essential as you think about the care of the flock. And it's essential because caring for the flock and exercising privileges within the flock is done only so that the flock is unified and kept unified. This is critical. And again, I'll say, by and large, what I see, we're doing well. But brothers, let's keep on. This is a gospel issue. This is a testimony issue. This is an accountability issue before the Lord. So we're one Let's keep exercising our freedoms so that we stay one. Father, thank you for a reminder from these verses of what you've provided for us and how we're to live and function. Thank you for how you have made us one. Might we now live out the reality of the oneness that we are. Thank you for the liberties you've given us. Might we enjoy them, but might we only enjoy them in a way that will glorify you and preserve the unity of the body because that's what Christ did to bring us together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.